Could you please open your Bible to Revelation chapter 20? And uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you uh, for this time that you've given to us. We thank you that we can sing praises uh, unto you. And uh, what a, a wonderful reality it is that Jesus uh, is ours. That is our blessed assurance. And uh, we want to thank you and praise you for that. Lord, we thank you for the book uh, Revelation and uh, what it uh, reveals to us about things to come. Uh, Lord, I uh, do ask that the Holy Spirit would help us uh, to understand uh, this portion of Scripture. And uh, please grant to us the grace that we need to apply uh, the message you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, imagine a world where righteousness dominated. A world where what is good, right and noble marked every aspect of life. A world where injustice was removed. Everybody was treated fairly and equally. A world where peace prevails. A world that's free of starvation and poverty. There's an abundance of the necessities of life for everybody. Good health prevails. Long life is the norm. Imagine a world that's no longer impacted by the curse. The environment is Eden-like immense productivity and peace even reigns in the animal kingdom predators and venomous animals no longer a threat now imagine a world ruled by a perfectly righteous king someone who deals with sin swiftly and fairly now that all sounds amazing doesn't it but it sounds a little unrealistic you know, a utopian fantasy reserved for the screens of Hollywood. And yet the millennial reign of Christ will be like this. Jesus will establish his kingdom on earth. He will rule and reign in perfect righteousness. The earth will be radically restored. There will be peace and prosperity, justice, righteousness, and joy will prevail. And it's this time period that's spoken about in Revelation chapter 20. Now notice how verse 1 commences, And I saw. This is a common phrase that we've seen throughout the book. And it introduces a new vision. And it also introduces the next event. So what's recorded here follows the second coming of Christ. So Jesus will return. Jesus will destroy his enemies and then he will establish his kingdom. So chronologically, this comes after the second coming, but before the eternal state. And it's important for us to realize that the millennial kingdom is not the eternal state. Okay, they're, they're different. We could say that it's a taste of the eternal state, but it's only, say, phase one of God's restoration. The eternal state will be even more grand and glorious. Now, when we speak about the millennium, okay, we who interpret prophecy through a premillennial lens, which is where we stand as a church, we're speaking of a physical, literal, 
earthly reign of Jesus that lasts for 1,000 years. So this is not merely some spiritual reality. This is not speaking about Jesus' rule in heaven, but a literal thousand-year reign okay, where Jesus is here on earth as the king. I want you to notice throughout our text, six times a thousand years is mentioned. Verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And I would like to suggest that if you were to read this with no preconceived theological views, you would read that as a thousand years. That's the literal sense. And it's interesting with how this is written with the word year and a number. Okay, every time that sentence structure is used in the Bible, the number is always literal. So if John didn't want us to take this literally, he would have written it differently. So the text, the way that it's structured, demands a literal thousand-year reign. But this leads to an important question. Why is this necessary? Why not just go straight into the eternal state after the second coming? Why does Jesus need to rule on this earth? Okay, why can't he just rule in the eternal state and that be enough? Well, here are three significant factors that demands a literal reign on earth. Number one is unfulfilled covenants. There are aspects of the Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenant that need to be fulfilled. And particularly in the Abrahamic and the Davidic, they are not fulfilled spiritually by the church. And the complete fulfillment of these covenants has not yet taken place. But they will be fulfilled during the earthly reign of Christ. Number two is Jesus' inheritance. Ryrie has this quote in his basic theology. It's in your notes. He says in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, King Jesus was promised authority to rule the earth in righteousness. Certainly, he did not see that promise fulfilled during his first advent, though he paid the price of his own life for it. In Revelation 5, he is proclaimed worthy to take the sealed book, open it, and receive the inheritance that is rightfully his. This will be fulfilled when he comes again. Why is an earthly kingdom necessary? Did he not receive his inheritance when he was raised and exalted in heaven? Is not his present rule his inheritance? Why does there need to be an earthly kingdom? Because he must be triumphant in the same arena where he was seemingly defeated. His rejection by the rulers of this world was on earth. His exaltation must also be on this earth. And so shall it be when he comes again to rule this world in righteousness. He has waited long for his inheritance. Soon he shall receive it. So that's the second reason. And the third reason is the creation mandate. Adam was commanded to have dominion over the earth. He was to be the Lord's co-regent over creation. But when he sinned, this was forfeited. And we read in the New Testament that Satan is spoken of as the ruler of this world. But Jesus returns to reign as the rightful ruler and he will succeed where Adam failed. He will have dominion over the earth. So a literal earthly reign is required. My friend, Jesus will personally 
and visibly reign over this world as king for a thousand year period. Now with that established, I want to share the big idea of our text, which is this. Christ, after his second coming, will rule and reign on this earth with his saints and will defeat all his enemies, including the wicked one. Okay, so that's what we're going to explore in our text. But here's the thing, and perhaps you notice this in the scripture reading, John doesn't include a lot of the details. There are three key things that he discusses, and that will form our outline. But before we get to that, I'd like to provide a broad overview of what the scriptures teach about this time, and then we will focus in on the three elements revealed in our text. The Bible actually has a lot to say about the kingdom of Jesus. There are over 400 verses in more than 20 different passages in the Old Testament that addresses Jesus' reign on earth. And I've included in the outline some of those portions of Scripture that speak of it. Now, obviously, time prohibits us from delving into those texts tonight. But what I'd like to do is to provide a couple of summaries to help you get the big picture of what this time will be like. So here's one quote from a respected scholar. And this too is in your notes. He says, a final blessing for the participants in the first resurrection is that they will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ for a thousand years, along with believers who survived the tribulation. Politically and socially, the rule of Christ and his saints will be universal and righteous. Sorry, absolute and righteous. Spiritually, their rule will be a time when the believing remnant of Israel is converted and the nation is restored to the land God promised to Abraham. It will be a time when the Gentile nations also will worship the king. The millennial rule of Christ and the saints will also be marked by the presence of righteousness and peace and joy. Physically, it will be a time when the curse is lifted, when food will be plentiful, and when there will be physical health and well-being leading to a long life. Sounds very good, doesn't it? Okay, so there's a description. Now, I'd also like to share some key points about the millennium. You'll notice this too in your outline. There's 20 points, and I've gleaned most of these from Pentecost book, Things to Come. You want to know more about end times? That's a wonderful book for you to read. It's a big book, but it's a wonderful book to read. Okay, these 20 points about the millennium. Okay, it is a theocracy, and Jesus is king. Number two, Israel will be restored as a nation, and Jerusalem will take center stage. Number three, the full manifestation of the glory of Jesus. Number four, characterized by righteousness, obedience, holiness, and truth. Number five, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Number six, peace, so a cessation of war. Number seven, joy. Fullness of joy will be a distinctive mark. Number eight is holiness. It will be a holy kingdom. Number nine is justice. The king will do what is right. Number 10, the removal of the curse. Number 11, sickness and deformity removed. Number 12, freedom of oppression. There'll be no social, racial, political, or religious oppression. 13 is reproduction. The unglorified will have children. Number 14 is work. There will be a fully functioning economy, including industry. Number 15 is prosperity. So there'll be no going without. 
Number 16, a unified language. 17, unified worship. 18, the temple will be rebuilt and in use. 19 is fellowship with God. 20, satanic influence removed. Okay, so I hope this is starting to paint a picture in your mind. That the canvas is starting to get filled with all of these glorious colors. And with that broad picture in mind, I now want to zoom in into our text. So there are three things revealed about the millennial reign of Christ. There is a before, a during, and an after element revealed in the text. Okay, remember, this is all about Christ ruling the world with his saints after his second coming. So the first thing that we see is before the kingdom, and that's Satan's forced removal. We see that in verses 1 through to 3. So for, the, for this kingdom to be established, it requires the removal of satanic influence. Okay, from the Garden of Eden up until the millennial kingdom, Satan has wreaked havoc in this world. Satan has wreaked havoc in the life of the occupants in this world. Satan is this life-sucking parasite determined to ruin everything. And hence, to have a kingdom like the Bible describes, it necessitates the removal of both the activity and the presence of Satan. Okay, we could say Team Satan will be eradicated from this world. And understand, this includes the demons, the fallen angels, unbelievers, Satan himself. That will all be removed. Okay, when Christ returns, all the unbelievers who survived the tribulation, they'll be executed at Armageddon. The beast and the false prophet, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. And now here the attention turns to the last member of the unholy trinity, Satan himself. And this is the first thing that John sees in this vision. Can we read that an angel come down from heaven? Now, I find it very interesting that it's not God the Father who comes down. It's not Jesus Christ. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's just an angel who binds Satan. And I think that's a reminder to us that Satan is not on the same level as God. They're not equals. They're not even close. And God could stop Satan's activity at any time. And he does here through one angel. Okay, this angel is said to have the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. The key, that speaks of authority. And this bottomless pit, this is where Satan will be bound. Now, this is not the final place of punishment, but rather this is temporary incarceration. It's still a place of torment, but it is distinct from the eternal place of torment. Now, we're told in verse 2 that the angel laid hold of Satan. You know, I love football and I have this picture of this aggressive tackle. And the Greek term, it speaks of seizing, of subduing, of overpowering. And he binds Satan with this chain. We don't know what this chain is exactly, but it is sufficient to bind the wicked one. Okay, he's shackled up. He's unable to move. He can't free himself. He's like that animal that's ensnared in the trap, and he's completely helpless. He's unable to free himself. Now, notice in verse 2, there's a fourfold description of the wicked one. 
And these titles paint a picture of his hideous nature. Can we read here he's referred to as the dragon. This speaks of his terrifying nature. He's cruel. He's dangerous. He's vicious. It emphasizes his ferocious cruelty. He's also that old serpent. That's meant to trigger in our mind the Garden of Eden. He's the ancient enemy who deceived Adam and Eve, ushering in the fall. He's also called the devil, meaning the slanderer, the accuser. He's a malicious liar. And then he's called Satan, meaning the adversary, the enemy, our opponent. He opposes God. He opposes Christ. He opposes believers. And this paints a very disturbing portrait And it's this one and all who side with him that will be removed from the world. We're told that he's bound, he's cast into a bottomless pit. The door is shut, it's locked, it's bolted. He's imprisoned in a location that's more secure than the world's highest security prison. And there's no way of escape. Satan and his wicked entourage are incarcerated. Their presence, their activity, their influence is eradicated from this world. You know, it's just like a king would seek to instantly eradicate his enemies and his threats when he took the throne. And this is what King Jesus does when he establishes his kingdom. And we're told that Satan is bound for a thousand years. And the text reveals that this prevents him from deceiving the nations. This is what Satan is all about. He's the master deceiver. And with him being bound, this ensures that a righteous and holy rule will be possible. But I want you to notice that this incarceration concludes with a disturbing detail. Verse 3 finishes, Till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed for a little season. Satan will be released from his incarceration. He will be back, but we'll get to that in a later point. But for now, we need to realize that the presence, the activity, and the influence of Satan and his followers will be removed. The father of lies, the slanderer, the murderer, he will not be present. And that's going to change things dramatically. And this is a necessary requirement for the kingdom to possess the qualities described in Scripture. My friend, there's a time coming when Satan and all that he stands for and all who stand with him will be removed from this world. There will be a complete cessation of his influence. We could say that all the noxious weeds will be eradicated from the garden and the glorious kingdom will thrive. So this is before the kingdom. Secondly, we see during the kingdom. We've called this the saints' future reign. We see this in verses 4 to 6. Now John continues to describe this vision in verse 4. He speaks of people sitting on thrones. A thrones here seems to communicate two things. It communicates royalty and also a tribunal seat. So this is a function of the believers who are with Christ. They will act as a judge. Now, there's much debate as to who is sitting on these thrones. 
Some will say it's the 24 elders who represent the church. We've met them throughout the book of Revelation. Others will say it's the 12 apostles, and they'll go to Luke 22. Uh, Some will say it's restricted to the martyred saints from the tribulation, as they're mentioned next in this verse. Whereas others favor it to be those who returned with Christ, as recorded in Revelation 19, 14. But I believe this seems to be speaking about Old Testament saints, church-age saints, and martyred saints. It's speaking about all those involved in the first resurrection. And we'll more on that point in a moment. But what is stressed throughout this section is that believers, okay, including us, will rule and reign with Christ. And I want you to think about that. That's astonishing. Because it's amazing grace that we are even permitted into this kingdom. But Jesus will not only allow us in, he will give us places and positions of authority and delegate important tasks to us. Okay, Jesus is the king, but all believers from all ages will get to rule and judge underneath him. Okay, in verse 6, okay, we're described as priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him. Priesthood tells us we have access to God, we have fellowship with God, and we will serve Him. And we're told we will reign with Him. Now with that in mind, let's backtrack just for a moment. Because verse 4 does spell out specifically the saints who were martyred in the tribulation. Okay, They are singled out in this vision. And hence, we must answer the question, why are they singled out? Well, I believe the purpose is to encourage those who are going through the tribulation. Okay, Remember, those believers are going through the tribulation. They're going to have a horrible time. And they will have the book of Revelation. And as they read this section, it's an encouragement. Remain faithful. Remain loyal to Christ. Don't bow the knee to the beast because there's a time coming when you will be rewarded. And you will rule and reign. And it also shows us that the tribulation saints are not a lesser class of believer. It's not Old Testament saints, church age saints, and then tribulation, nor is it church, Old Testament, tribulation saints. Okay, They're not a lesser class because they too will reign. And this text will encourage those saints to remain loyal to the Lord during the tribulation. So I believe that's why it's included. But there's no reason to limit this reigning with Christ to the tribulation saints. Because John goes on to mention the first resurrection. Now in the Bible, it speaks of two resurrections. Now it's important to understand that this speaks not of one event, but of an order or type of resurrection. Okay, there are two types of resurrection. John 5.29 speaks of the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. Okay, resurrection of life, that's the first resurrection. The resurrection of damnation, that's the second resurrection. But we need to understand that there are different phases of the first type of resurrection. Okay, it's still classed as the first resurrection, but there's different phases. Obviously, Jesus was first. 
Okay, he's the firstborn from the dead, the first to rise. Then there'll be the church age saints at the rapture. And then the Old Testament and tribulation saints at the end of the tribulation. But this is all classed as the first resurrection. Okay, that's the resurrection of life. The second resurrection is one of death. And this speaks of all of those throughout history who have died in unbelief, who have rejected Jesus Christ. Okay, they will be raised at the end of the millennium and they will be sentenced to eternity in hell. That's what's recorded in the next section of the book of Revelation. But here John is speaking about the role and function of those who have experienced the first resurrection, those who belong to Christ, those who are his people. Today we would say the Christians, and they will have the blessed privilege of reigning under Christ. Okay, the exact details are a little bit hazy. But Scripture does teach that our roles will be determined by our faithfulness in this life. Okay, when our labors for Christ are judged, okay, we will either be rewarded or lose reward. Okay, and a part of this will determine our roles and responsibilities in the kingdom and in the eternal state. And that acts as a motive to serve Christ in the here and now. But whatever it looks like, whatever the exact details are, my friend, isn't it astonishing that Jesus would grant such things? It's grace that we are even permitted to come into this kingdom. We don't deserve that. And Jesus goes beyond that will put believers in places of authority, roles of responsibility, permit them to reign with him. That's grace upon grace, that we will have a role to play in Jesus' kingdom, that we will be with him, we will be like him, we will be worshipping him, we will be in fellowship with him, we will be serving him. That is a wonderful existence. And this will be far greater than even the best things we have experienced in this life. Think about the best things you've ever experienced, and that is nothing compared to what we'll experience during the millennial kingdom. So we've seen before the kingdom, we've seen during the kingdom. Let's now consider after the millennial kingdom. This is our third point, sin's final revolt in verses 7 through to 10. We have a disturbing and disappointing event that concludes the kingdom. We were warned about this in verse 3. Okay, at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released. I want you to notice in verse 7 that it says, shall be loosed. In the Greek, this is in the passive voice. And what that tells us is that this is done to Satan. So this is not something that Satan has done himself. Satan doesn't escape, but rather this only happens because God allowed it. And again, this serves as a vivid reminder that Satan is not God's equal. So here, under the providence of God, Satan is released for a short period, and he goes on a mass deception campaign. Okay, this is his last hurrah. 
And no doubt he has a renewed hunger, a renewed focus after being locked away. And he employs every deceptive ploy that he knows. And do you know what's a sad reality? Is that he's successful. His seductive deception works. Multitudes unconceivably choose Satan over Jesus. Satan is successful. Notice in verse 8, we're told he assembles an army. This army is referred to as Gog and Magog. And we're told that the numbers exceed the sands of the sea. That's John's way of saying this is a very large group. So Satan manages to deceive multitudes of people. And he gathers them together to go to war against King Jesus. Like they stood a chance. And they converge on the holy city. They're ready for battle. But really this is not a war. This is not a battle. This is their execution. Because the fiery judgment of God consumes them. And Satan and all who side with him are cast into the lake of fire. Okay, they end up in the same place as the beast and the false prophet. So the unholy trinity, they're defeated. And I want you to notice that this is eternal torment. It's very clear in verse 10. This is ongoing punishment forever. That's what the Bible teaches about hell. Okay, it's not annihilation. It's not for a brief period. It is eternal torment. But we see here that Satan and his kingdom are forever defeated. Their revolt was not successful. Satan loses. Jesus wins. That's how the story will end. But there are some questions that we need to answer to help us understand sin's final revolt. Question number one, who is this group that sides with Satan? Okay, well, where, where do these people come from? And this point can be a little confusing initially, but we need to understand it's not the glorified saints, but rather those saints who survived the tribulation. They will enter the millennial kingdom and they will be able to reproduce. And this is how the kingdom will be populated. And then those children will have children and so on and so forth. And those who were born in the kingdom, they will be faced with a choice. Will they accept King Jesus or will they reject King Jesus? And, you know, and this was the thing that really struck me. That these people, they lived in the perfect kingdom. That they lived under the perfect king. Jesus is ruling and reigning. They live in this perfect environment. And yet many never accept Jesus. Sure that there was this outward conformity because Jesus is ruling with the rod of iron, but they never embraced Jesus by faith internally. And as soon as an alternative was presented, they were seduced by Satan. and They rejected Jesus. And my friend, that's a real indictment upon humanity. A real indictment. 
So that's question one. Question two, why did God allow this to happen? Why have this final revolt? Why did God allow the release of the wicked one? Okay, here are three reasons. Number one, it demonstrates the evil intentions of Satan that consume him both now and forever. Satan was bound in torments. He's punished for a thousand years, and yet it did not change him. He didn't come out a changed man, as we would say today. In fact, it increased his hate for God and his determination to ruin everything. So that's reason one. Reason two, it reveals that even in a near-perfect environment, with no satanic temptation, mankind is capable of and willing to rebel against God. And this is a disturbing quality of humanity. And my friend, it it debunks the theory we hear today that our environment is our problem. Because even in the perfect environment, man still rejects Jesus. And what this is all about, this is God ensuring that mankind has no excuse at the judgment seat. Throughout history, God has done all of these different things, worked in different ways to prove that mankind will reject him. So when someone comes before God, they say, well, hey, if I saw Jesus in the flesh, if I saw miracles, I would have believed. And God can say, no, no, I I, I did that. And they crucified him. Well, well, God, if I had the perfect environment, if Satan was removed, I would believe. Well, well, no, you wouldn't. Jesus ruled for a thousand years and people still revolted. There will be no excuse when man comes before the judgment seat. This is one reason why Satan was released. Then the third reason is that it justifies eternal punishment. Okay, this confirms to us that Satan is still wicked after a thousand years of torments. And this illustrates to us that in the lake of fire, in hell, wickedness and sin is not purged away. Hell does not make you a better person. What one does not become pure or righteous in hell And this destroys the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Okay, one thing that makes hell such a horrible place is that one remains in sin. Okay, one remains in sin for all eternity. We see this illustrated by Satan. So this is at least some of the reasons why God allows this final release of Satan. But it's certainly disturbing that mankind would revolt against Jesus. Even after living in his kingdom, even after experiencing the manifold blessings of his reign. But this will happen. There will be this final revolt led by the wicked one. But understand, it will be crushed. Jesus will win. Genesis 3.15 will be fulfilled. The head of the serpent will be crushed and once that's fulfilled that will usher in eternal paradise so with all that in mind i want to leave you with three thoughts of application 
The first is this, the danger of external conformity. The danger of external conformity. Mankind can appear externally to be the follower of Jesus, but in reality, they are not. Okay, this is illustrated in the kingdom. Man lives in this perfect kingdom under the perfect king, and yet they never yield to him. They never place their faith in him, and they embrace Satan as soon as they're given the chance. And this is alarming, and this should cause you and I to self-reflect. It is possible for us to conform to Jesus externally, but never embrace him internally. We, we, We can appear to be Christians externally, but that not be the case internally. We've never accepted Christ by faith. And that should terrify us that that is possible. And hence I implore you tonight, are you really following Jesus? Have you embraced him as your savior by faith? Or is it all just a facade? Deep down, you know that you're faking it. You're not really a Christian. Sure, you know the gospel, but you've never embraced it. My friend, understand that external conformity will not do. And your fate will be the same as Satan and those who followed him. But God in his amazing grace is giving you another opportunity right now. Accept Jesus Christ as your savior by faith. But believe that he is the only one who is able to save you from sin through his saving work on the cross. Don't pretend your way to hell. Because external conformity won't save you. The second point of application is that we sin because we are sinners. So often... We can be guilty of offering excuses for our sin. We are master excuse makers. Have you ever caught yourself out doing that? You do the wrong thing and you're very quick to point the finger at someone else. I get angry and my thing is instead of saying, Brennan, you're angry. It's God, it's those four kids you gave me. They make me cross. You know, so instead of dealing with myself, I find someone else to blame. But you know what? There's no excuse for sin. And we see this illustrated here, even in the near perfect environment, even with Satan removed, even with Jesus present, mankind still inexplicably follows Satan. And this confirms beyond a doubt that we sin because we are sinners. That's why we sin. And we need to stop making excuses about our sin. And this happens an awful lot today. Okay, there's whole movements based on identifying excuses. Okay, it's called psychology. Okay, that's what it does. Okay, blame something else except me. Today, so often we blame our sin on our environment, on our upbringing, on our circumstances. Usually the finger is pointed at mums and dads. It's all their faults. Truth be told, we have no excuses because we read here that even in the perfect environment, with the perfect situations, with the perfect king, mankind still sins. And that's because we're sinners. And as Christians in the here and now, man, we need to stop 
offering excuses for sin because it's detrimental to our spiritual growth. Stop passing the buck. It's not your kid's fault that you yell and scream. It's your angry heart. It's not the way that women dress that's to blame. Okay, it's your lust and immorality. It's a heart problem. It's not your low wage that makes you jealous of what others have. It's coveting in your heart. Okay, you fill in the blank. Whatever it is for you, there's no excuse. We sin because we're sinners. And when we believe that, and when we stop making excuses... That's a good point to be at because then we can throw ourselves at the grace of God that we so desperately need. And this transforming power can work in us. It can change us. But wherever we make excuses, things will never change. And then the third point of application, this is really the main thing. There's some great things in store for us as Christians. If you're a Christian here tonight, you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Man, there are some great things in store for us as the followers of Christ. There's so many amazing things. Now, sure, this life can be hard. This life can be really hard. But the life to come, it's going to be amazing. Okay, We will live in this kingdom age that we read about here. We're going to reign with Jesus. We're going to experience life free from the impacts of the curse. We're going to live a thousand years in a world that's not influenced by Satan. I don't think we can even fathom what that's going to be like. And the best part is that we will live with Jesus. We will see Jesus. We will fellowship with him. We will serve him we're going to live this amazing life. And do you know what's staggering? That's just the millennial kingdom. Yes, that will be spectacular, but the eternal states, that will be even better. My friend, we have so many great and glorious things in store for us. And this is designed to infuse us with hope. This life is not all that there is. Praise the Lord. There are so many great and glorious things awaiting the followers of Jesus. And we will enjoy them all forever with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My friend, it is a wonderful thing to be a Christian. And may these future realities infuse us with hope as we live this life in the present. Even when life is really, really hard, when horrible things happen as Christians, we still have hope. We have so many things awaiting us. And the best thing is that we will be with Jesus forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing to us uh, that which is going to happen in the future. Without your revelation, we could not know these things. And uh, Lord, as Christians, this is exciting. And I do pray that it would uh, infuse us uh, with hope as we live uh, in this world. 
May the reality of, of future things you know, help us uh, through the, the difficulties uh, of this life. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone here tonight that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, you may be there pretending it's just all a, a facade. Lord, I pray that they would come to Jesus in repentance and faith tonight and embrace him uh, as their Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close.